This is a wonderful day that we celebrate. This is a time in our culture where we remember our mothers, and I know we have many of them here, and we have a number of our folks who have gone to visit their mothers, and I know my mom is going to be at our place a little bit later on, and unfortunately Nancy's mom is still about 500 miles away. We'll give her a call, and you know how all of those things go. It's a wonderful time of the year. And I thought today we would step away from our verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of Matthew and reflect a little bit upon this whole idea of what it really means to honor our wives and our mothers. I'm eternally grateful for godly grandmothers in my life who modeled the love of Christ and showered me with Affection as a young child and as a young boy, young man. I'm thankful for a godly mother who raised me to fear the Lord and continues to pray and sacrificially serve me and my family. I'm thankful for a godly mother-in-law that raised my precious wife to love the Lord with all of her heart and has been such an inspiration to our family. And certainly I'm thankful for a godly wife the mother of my children, who continues to be the most tangible expression of God's divine mercy and grace in my life. I'm thankful for a godly daughter and daughter-in-law who love their husbands, love their children, my grandbabies. I've got some pictures if you want to see them. I've even got them here. Women who are committed to raising their children and the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I'm thankful for them. And I'm thankful for all all of you moms here at Calvary Bible Church who constantly stagger me as I watch your devotion to your family and and, and your love for your children and your husbands and just the stamina that it takes for you to do all that you do. As men, we will gladly tend the fields and we will gladly fight your wars. But please do not ask us to tend to the children for longer than a few hours, for certainly such exhausting labor is beyond the realm of our endurance. And so we are all amazed as we watch you tend to your children. And beyond that, I'm certainly amazed as your pastor to watch so many of you adorn yourselves in godly virtue and manifest the meek and quiet, submissive spirit that honors the Lord. And truly it is the hidden person of the heart that is attractive to God and to men who love the Lord, not the outward appearance alone, as First Peter 3 tells us. So indeed, I believe it is appropriate this morning for us to recognize your, your love, your sacrifice. Yours is not an easy job. I know of no rational man who wishes he had been born a woman so that he could be a mother. But, ladies, the joys of motherhood and the sanctity of your marriage and your home is under siege. I think you all realize that. If you don't, you need to. The world is utterly hostile to All that you would stand for as a Christian mother and a Christian wife. It is opposed to everything that would bring you joy, ultimately. Our culture has made a mockery 
of marriage and of motherhood and the divine institution of the family. The never ending attacks of various satanic forms of systems of belief and philosophies just just continue to bombard the family. I think of radical feminism as it continues to shape the minds of our society. We see it. It's just rampant in our politics. It's in our colleges, our universities, sadly, even in many so-called Bible schools and seminaries. You have such things as the gender neutral Bible, which is, again, a staggering illustration of Satan's relentless attack upon the infallible record of divine revelation. We see the effects of feminism as we look at angry women literally fight for the right to choose to kill their unborn babies. And they do so with a rage that it can only be described as frightening. One document that is considered to be foundational for the philosophy of modern feminism is called a Declaration of Feminism. And it really summarizes their thinking and has certainly shaped our culture. One statement that is especially frightening reads as follows, and I quote, Marriage has existed for the benefit of men and has been a legally sanctioned method of control over women. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not to live individually with men. Now we know that it is the institution of marriage that has failed us and we must work to destroy it. End quote. Now we see lesbianism and other forms of homosexuality being flaunted. There's even now, I understand, a gay network on television. Inconceivable. And we know that Satan is the God of this world and he is ingenious in his attacks on the two institutions that God has ordained, the church and marriage. We also see that mothers struggle with economic factors in our society that make it increasingly, increasingly difficult for mothers to flourish in their God ordained role to be, as Paul said in Titus two, five keepers at home. Very hard for mothers to do these days. Very hard for them to be able to stay home and bring up their children in the nurture and the instruction of the Lord. Daycares and television now raise the majority of children in the United States. And certainly Hollywood continues to spread the moral cancer of, of adultery and it, it just diminishes the, the, the glorious truths of the sanctity of marriage. You see it in such, such shows that are so popular, even like Friends. I, I, saw, I saw part of that once. That was all I could handle. And it's such an insidious thing. We see Hollywood producing more and more themes regarding homosexuality and every imaginable philosophy that would mock the divine virtues that are to be found in marriage and in the family. We see half-dressed trollops parading themselves across stages, singing their songs of immorality, intoxicating our youth with the wine of debauchery. And then we see our young girls, our young teenage girls, beginning to dress and act like them. 
You go to the malls these days and young girls are dressed like whores. They're desperate for male attention. And then young men succumb to their seductions, resulting in what we now have as a generation of children that were produced by unwed mothers. We see a proliferation of substance abuse because of all of this. Suicide is on the rise with our youth. And there are new venereal diseases coming up every month that we don't know how to treat. Beloved, we are in a battle for the hearts and the minds of our children. And it begins at home. And guess who has the greatest influence over children in the home? All you have to do is look at an NFL football game. And when the camera comes along to a 300 pound linebacker or however much a linebacker would weigh, what does he say? Hi, Dad. No, he says, hi, Mom. Staggering the influence that mothers have. And it's a wonderful thing. Moms, may I say to you, never underestimate the influence that you have on your children for both good and for evil. But, you know, I deal with something every day as a pastor and I have for years in my ministry. Dear friends, Christian moms, Christian moms need help. Certainly non-believers do as well. They need the Lord, but Christian moms need help. Many are struggling, not on not only under the weight of these last days where we will see an increase of unprecedented apostasy in our culture and even in our churches. But sadly, many wives and many mothers cry themselves to sleep. Because of something far more painful. Because of something far more devastating in their hearts than the social pressures and the political pressures and all of the garbage from Hollywood that we have to guard our children against. Even more than just the demands of trying to raise children. Dear friends, what many Christian mothers and wives struggle with. Is ungodly husbands and fathers. Who simply do not love them and do not lead them as they should. Men, I know of no greater way for us to honor our wives and our mothers than for us to humbly examine our hearts this morning before the Lord. To reexamine what God has asked us to do, not only for the good of our wives, but for our good and for God's glory. Men, I hope you realize that. We will all give an account someday before God concerning the way we loved our wives, the way we loved our families, the way we gave oversight to our families. And I'm sure that some of you have wives and children that are living in sorrow. I know that to be a fact, even in this church and certainly in our community. Some of you have wives that live in pain and disappointment. Some of your wives have told me that being your wife is very difficult. And I know of some that have said it's virtually unbearable. I know many women who are unfulfilled. They're angry. They're disillusioned. They're depressed. and Most of them are too afraid to even say so. 
And frankly, it would be a supreme act of hypocrisy for we as men to buy our wives, the mothers of our children, a beautiful corsage and take them out to dinner today and never give any thought to perhaps the wickedness within our heart that burdens them day after day. So men, may I gently yet authoritatively as your pastor Admonish every man as I've had to admonish myself this week as I have thought through what I'm about to tell you. May I just admonish you to measure yourself this morning against the divine standard. There are three crucial admonitions that we are going to look at today out of many, but I believe these are foundational. These would be the foundation stones upon which we must build the superstructure of our marriage and of our family. Let me give you the three commands, and they're found in Ephesians 5 and 1 and chapter 6, if you would like to turn there. Three commands. Number one, to be spirit-controlled. Number two, we're commanded to love our wives. And number three, we're commanded to discipline and instruct our children. And I want to expand upon these three concepts for all of us here today. But men, I'm especially speaking to you. Now, first of all, may I remind you of some basic theological principles that we find in Scripture. Family problems are inherent in Adam's sin. And I'm going to cover a lot of material in kind of a broad Stroke this morning because we wouldn't have time to go into it completely. But please understand that the Bible teaches us that family problems are rooted in Adam's sin and the curse to Eve. We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You will recall in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 that to the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Two things there. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Literally, he is saying that he's going to greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. There was an increased fertility that occurred at the fall. Prior to the curse, a woman was not able to conceive on a monthly basis as you are today. And indeed, increased fertility means more children. And you think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, certainly there, there's great joys in that. And we, we don't want to mitigate that at all. But with more children, there will be more responsibility, more mouths to feed, more children to nurture, more children to protect, more children to teach and discipline more little sinners to deal with. And in most cases, as they grow older, their sin grows with them and eventually their hearts break. And with every generation, we see sin being multiplied with increasing sorrow for many women. And historically, childbirth, and I know it's not necessarily the case in our culture as much. It certainly is among the poorer people, but historically childbirth and raising children has been an enormous burden for mothers. You look at third world countries today and you will see that. Many of them die giving birth and many of them die trying to sustain the life of their children. And so God reminds us back in Genesis through the, the curse on the woman of a perpetual 
reminder through increased fertility and, and, and childbearing and child rearing, a, a perpetual reminder of the ravages of sin. And certainly wives and mothers are in desperate need for husbands to come along and to love them and to lead them and to help with this. But also he told them, told Eve and therefore all women that her desire shall be for her husband and he shall rule over you. The word desire means to control or to dominate. In other words, women will have a proclivity to somehow usurp the leadership of the man and to dominate him. And so all the way back in Genesis, we see the the beginnings of a perpetual struggle between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. She will want to manipulate, to control. And what will a husband do? Well, he will have a proclivity to react with tyrannical authority and bully her into submission. And there you see the battle of the sexes all the way back at the beginning. So men, for the Lord's sake, and to honor our wives and mothers, let's humble ourselves before the, war, the, the Lord and see some of these admonitions, these, the, the, these great commands that God has given us as men that can help with this problem that we will all face in our families, with our marriages, with our children, especially in our culture. Number one, we are to be spirit controlled. Look at Ephesians chapter five and verse 18. The Apostle Paul writing here to the church in Ephesus, and he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Now, you say that looks like it's a verse applying to all of us. Well, certainly it is. But what you will see is that in the verses to follow, there are many more admonitions to the husband than to the wife. And since he is the one held responsible as the head of the of the wife and the head of the family, I believe this text weighs more heavily upon the husband than anyone else, even though it certainly would apply to us all. And this text, by the way, will be the key to understanding love and leadership and headship and submission. Those those wonderful principles that God has given us throughout his word, but especially here in Ephesians chapter five. Now, men, let me say from the outset that if you accurately understand this text and you live it, your life and your marriage will be transformed into something vibrant and, and fulfilling. It will become your family and your marriage will become a haven of blessing and rest. Now, what does it mean? Do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Well, certainly you've got to understand the context in Ephesus. One of the things that they would do in the pagan temples would have they would have drunken orgies and they considered that an act of worship. It's amazing how Satan can deceive people. And certainly wine has an effect, doesn't it? What does wine or strong drink? What does it do? Well, it intoxicates. And so literally what the Apostle Paul is using here is an illustration from that culture that would say, don't be intoxicated with wine, but be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. It literally has the idea of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be filled up by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, 
Be a man whose mind and whose heart is utterly devoted to honoring the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, again, we've got to back up, guys. And certainly, ladies, you can eavesdrop here because much of this applies to you as well. We need to back up and make sure we understand some of the biblical concepts here with respect to the Holy Spirit. We know that he is the third person of the Trinity and that he lives within every twice born saint. He is given to every person from the father by the son's request to be our helper. He is, in fact, our resident teacher that lives within us, that guides us into all truth. And he even brings truth to our remembrance when we need it, according to John 14. In 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 19, Paul tells us, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Guys, remember that when you are tempted to succumb to some temptation that is an abomination before the Lord. Because even though you might be in the solitude of your computer or the solitude of your video machine, the Holy Spirit of God, if you're born again, is watching exactly what you're watching. Now, think with me for a minute, men. Everything that has happened to you in salvation has been a direct result of the Spirit of God. According to John 16, he's the one that has convicted us of our sin, of our need for the Savior. John 3, 8, we read that we are born of the Spirit. Regeneration. We would have never come to Christ apart from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, he's the one that's given to us. He, or he has given to us the knowledge of the truth. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, he's given us liberty from the law of sin, which is the law of death. In 1 Corinthians 12, he is the one that has baptized us or literally immersed us into his life and into his power. According to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 19 through 20, we read that he is the one that indwells us. In Ephesians 1, we read that he is the one that has sealed us. In Romans 8, we see that he is the one that causes us to walk in righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read that he is the one that empowers us with supernatural gifts to function within the body of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, we read that he is the one that causes us to bear spiritual fruit. In Acts 1.8, he is the one that empowers us for evangelism. In Romans 8, we see that he prays for us in ways that we can't even comprehend. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we read that he sanctifies us. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read that he makes us become more conformed to the image of Christ from one level of glory to the next. And in Romans 8 and verse 23, we read that he is our Erebon, our engagement ring, our seal, our hope of eternal life. Now, also remember that it is the Holy Spirit of God that has given to us the word of God, the scripture. In 2 Peter 1, 2, we read that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And it is also the Holy Spirit of God that reveals the things of God to us. First Corinthians 2.10 says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. So men 
to be filled with the spirit, to be under his divine influence, to be controlled by him means that every thought, every attitude and every action flows out of our heart, out of our mind, through our will. And it is all flowing from a moment by moment surrender to the spirit of God as he has revealed himself to us through his word. Said simply, you have got to know the word of God if you're going to be a spirit controlled man. You have to study it. You have to meditate upon it. You have to pray it. You have to guard it and you've got to live it. Now, how will you know if you're doing this? How will you know when you're intoxicated with the spirit of God? Go back to Ephesians five. Look at verse 19. You're going to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, let's stop there for a second. Speaking to one another. This refers to a a noticeable desire for one to speak publicly concerning the goodness and the glory of God. Guys, let me ask you this. If you were to ask your wife, honey, I'm curious. Do you hear me talking of the glory and the goodness of God during the week, during the course of our life? Or is that something foreign for many women they would say you know I never hear my husband talk about those things not only that he goes on to say that it's it's going to be a, a praise to God in song in other words there will be a song within the heart of a man who is spirit controlled you know if I can put it a little bit differently folks you show me a man who doesn't like to sing the glories of Christ and I'll show you a man that's not spirit controlled You show me a man who hears the glorious hymns of the faith and it kind of turns them off. And I just don't like that stuff. You need to examine to see if you're even in the Lord, much less being spirit controlled. Notice also in verse 19, he says that you're going to be singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. You see, it's not only public, but it will be private. Even in private, there will be an exhilarating joy because of the divine presence, because I am so full of the Holy Spirit as he's revealed himself in this word. And I find my heart just overflowing with doxologies of praise. You see, men, what our Lord longs for us to manifest and what our wives long to see and what the mothers of our children long to see in us is a heart that is so under the influence of the Spirit of God that it overflows with doxologies of praise. You know, the more I grow in Christ, and I know many of you men can identify with this, the more I stagger under the weight of His glorious truths, the more I can't wait to share it, the more I can't wait to run into my wife and say, Honey, look what the Lord has revealed to me today. Or something that she has seen. And we talk about it and we're just, we're just stunned with it. It's like you're living with a world view that looks beyond the temporal and sees into the eternal. And certainly one of the evidences of that is that there will be a song in your heart. It doesn't matter if you can't sing. I've heard some of you say, you know, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. That's okay. That's not the point. The point is, is there a song in your heart? Do you speak the praises of God publicly in the course of everyday living? Or is it something 
that seldom, if ever, even goes through your mind. If you are the latter, I assure you, I assure you that your wife's heart is breaking. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit of God uses his word to loosen our grip on the world, isn't it? How it causes our hearts to long for horses, for for heaven. And I was thinking of uh, the idea of of um, the way that God has moved in the hearts of so many men and how he causes us to want to know more of him and want to sing of him. And all of that is a gift of the Spirit of God. So men, a spirit-filled life produces music, songs of redemption, songs of hope, exalting the God of our salvation. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? The unsaved of this world laugh at our songs. Those songs are ridiculous to them. Why? Because they don't have the Holy Spirit of God residing within them. The psalmist says in 96 verses 1 through 2, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Well, men, it doesn't stop there. If you're spirit controlled, not only will there be verse 19 coming out of your heart, but also look at verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things. Wow. You know, when you're filled with the spirit, you're contented with what life brings to you. Things don't seem to upset you nearly as much as those who are not filled with the Spirit. And here's where I really have to work. Yes, honey, I'll take out the trash. I'm thankful that I can do that. I'm thankful that I can serve you in that way. Oh, it's okay, honey, you, 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 you dented the, the truck. I, I, I'm, I'm just thankful that you weren't hurt. Uh, OK, honey, it's, it, I'm, I'm just thankful that we have dinner, even though it is late. That's fine. No big deal, because God's in control of everything. I'm just going to rejoice in the Lord. You know, guys, if we were more that way, there just probably wouldn't be any fights in the home. You know, it's really hard to pick a fight with a person that's always thankful. You know what? And then on top of that, they're always singing about the Lord. But that certainly is the fruit of the of being filled with the Holy Spirit, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the father. The guys, it doesn't stop there. Notice what happens now because of our unrestricted worship as we enjoy the indwelling spirit and because we're under his divine influence. We can now do something that would normally be impossible. Verse 21 and be subject to. To one another in the fear of Christ. Oh boy. Now here's where it starts getting tough. Be subject to one another. The Greek term to be subject to literally means to rank yourself under. It means to subordinate yourself. It was literally a military term used to describe one that would submit to a superior officer. Or even used to describe slaves submitting to masters. Guys, what this is saying is that when you're spirit controlled, you're going to be a man that will be willing to give up his rights. You're going to be a man that will be willing to relinquish your control and humbly serve your wife and other people. 
Yes, but my wife is so hard to love, Pastor, you just don't know. And my kids are obnoxious. They need discipline. I mean, my family, when I come home, it's like trying to herd cats. My career stinks. I, I don't like myself anymore. My, my, my finances are in ruin. My, my, my life is, my spiritual life is shallow. Quite honestly, at times, I think I'm just mad at God. What am I supposed to do? And on top of that, my wife is, is she's just angry and, and, and controlling and manipulative. She's always nagging at me. What am I supposed to do? Oh, I can tell you. Surrender yourself to the Spirit's control. Notice I didn't say, go to Sunday school more, go to church more, go to Wednesday night Bible study more. Surrender yourself to the influence of the Spirit of God. Men, what you must do is you must always begin, whenever you have marital problems, you have family problems, begin with the assumption that the disaster in your marriage is primarily your fault. That's where you must begin. You have to say, God, maybe I have grieved your Holy Spirit. And I must confess that I'm not filled with your spirit. Lord, I'm willing to examine my heart and deal with my sin. God, I want to cry out to you for forgiveness. I want to cry out to you for wisdom and knowing how to deal with my wife, who indeed is hard to live with. But God, I'm sure that by your power and as I commit myself to remaining under the influence of the spirit of the living God, that you will help me to know how to love her and how to serve her. Even as Hosea did Gomer. And then, men, you sit back and you begin to watch the transformation of your heart and your mind. And gradually what you will see is your lips will begin to speak the glories and the excellencies of Christ. Within your heart, a song will begin to overflow as you enjoy communing with the living God. Even as Jesus said in John 7, when the Holy Spirit comes in you, out of your soul will flow living waters. Is that indicative of your life, men? And then your, your heart and your soul will begin to sing songs. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. And those great hymns of the faith that we sing, that we rehearse here every Sunday, begin to resonate within your heart. And as you live out your life, the Spirit of God brings them to mind along with other biblical concepts. And it produces a person that is Spirit-controlled. And our wives rejoice. And so too our children. And then, men, you will begin to experience what the Holy Spirit longs for you to feel. Now, please hear this. What the Holy Spirit of God longs for you to feel at the very core of who you are. Summarized in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 19, He wants us to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And then He says, now to Him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you ask or think according to the power that works within you which is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Men, if you struggle in your marriage and you struggle in your family, that's where you must begin. And then you watch the Spirit of God begin to empower you. 
There's no guarantee that your wife will reciprocate, but it will certainly raise the probability. But certainly what is the guarantee is regardless of what she does, you will be blessed and the Lord will honor you for your faithfulness to him. So, men, we must begin here being spirit controlled. Then and only then can we be obedient to the supreme command. The second point that I would give you this morning We are commanded to love our wives. Drop down to verse 25. Again, we have to just cover this text in a rather broad way. But notice what verse 25 says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Guys, here's where many of us get all of this distorted. Many of us have a distorted understanding of our primary responsibility as a husband. Most men and many Christian men, in fact, I would say most Christian men, think that, well, you know, since I am the the head of the wife, I'm her boss. Um, Because I have the responsibility of leadership, I need to assert my authority. What I say goes. Frankly, if I want her opinion, I'll give it to her. I'll set the agendas. I will make all the major decisions. After all, I am the head of the home. She basically exists to serve me. You know the type. Wife runs around and waits on him hand and foot. He thinks that God has given him the privileged position to spout out commands. It's all right for him to get mad and show out when things don't go his way, but oh, she should never do that. And frankly, guys, especially in our southern culture, we have this redneck macho man mentality that basically sees our wife as a two-legged Labrador retriever that exists to just go fetch us stuff. Honey, I need some more coffee. Uh, Honey, I need some slippers. Honey, will you get me the remote? And then as a result, our wives live in fear of making you mad. What a horrific way to live. One woman told me the other day that she has not a child-centered home. We were talking about child-centered homes where some homes, you know, everything focuses around little Johnny. And little Johnny becomes the center of gravity around which everybody orbits. But she says, that's not my home. I have a husband-centered home. Everything has to orbit around him, his desires. I feel like I'm always on duty. And she, like so many women, described feeling oppressed and feeling used. And sadly, most women just learn to live with it. And then as the years go on, the marriage deteriorates, deteriorates into a roommate status. It's sad that such perversion of love flourishes even in Christian circles. But the truth is, we are to love her, men, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Don't you see there's humble sacrifice involved here? There there is servant leadership. There is a kind, gentle, selfless love that must be there that refuses to be self-seeking. We have to be men that are utterly consumed with the welfare of our wife. Can you imagine Jesus saying to one of the disciples, hey, uh, somebody needs to come here and wash my feet. 
Uh, Peter, will you go get me something to drink? I'm thirsty. Mary, Martha, where's supper? I'm hungry. Don't you know what time it is? I mean, men, where's our minds here? And yet that's precisely how we treat our wives many times. Countless Christian wives describe their relationship with their husbands with words like, I'm afraid. I feel like I'm on duty because you never know how he will explode, what will set him off. They describe their husbands as domineering, overbearing, rude, insensitive, whiny. He treats me like a little girl. Demeaning. He loves to humiliate me. He's manipulative. He uses me. He's selfish. He's demanding. Guys, this is our propensity because of our flesh and the unique effect of the curse upon us. And we must fight against it. Can you imagine the disciples ever describing Jesus in such a way? Yeah, he's just a tyrant, man. I mean, the guy's demanding, manipulative. You never know when he's going to blow up. Man, how did we ever get this way? The answer is real simple. We're not spirit filled. And then we can justify our actions because we've seen our fathers do that. Men, we are called to serve her, not vice versa. God didn't say, you know what? I have called you to be her husband because I want you to be in charge of her life. I want you to be her boss. You know, and it's, it's incredible when you think about it. In Luke 12, 37, there's a glorious picture of Christ serving us when he even comes for us. Do you realize that? That even in heaven, the Lord, it is said, will, will, will gird himself to serve us. And as we recline at the table, he's going to wait upon us. Guys, we've got this whole thing completely twisted. Notice what else the Spirit of God tells us in verse 26 and 27 about our love. Here's how Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. You see, guys, our love is not only a serving love, but a purifying love. Christ strives to make us holy so that he will present us to himself, the church, in all of its glory, Indikos in the original language, it means being adorned in glorious splendor. You see, this is the kind of love that should be our love for our wives, guys, where we battle against anything that might defile our wife. That anything that might threaten her purity becomes becomes something that we hate. Men, we have a priestly role. Biblically, as head of our homes, to guard the purity of our wives and help them grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And that means we are to be the ones that lead them to constantly expose them to the word of God, to demonstrate to them the supremacy of the truth of Scripture, making sure that they understand it and they live it. And comforting them with it when they need it and how sad it is to see wives sometimes that are I mean. They're just happy if their husbands even come to church, much less do anything else. What a tragedy. Men, we have got to take an active role in the process of sanctification of our wives. And to do anything less is an abomination before the Lord. 
And men, you wonder why your marriage is falling apart. You wonder why it's becoming unfulfilling, why it's boring, why your wife no longer enjoys being intimate with you, why marriage and the family is just a source of conflict and heartache. Guys, if we took as good a care of our wives as we do our cars and trucks, our families would be bringing to us untold fulfillment. Men, examine your heart. Look at verses 28 and 29. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. We are to nourish her and to cherish her. Nourish, trefo, it means to bring them up. We see it also in verse 4 of chapter 6, where we bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Guys, we are to bring up our wives. We are, in other words, to nourish them, to nurture and feed them spiritually. Are you doing that? When was the last time you ever sat down with your wife and said, Honey, there's some glorious truths that God has revealed to me, and I want to make sure that you understand these with me. By the way, make sure your wife is sitting down when you do that, because she might collapse in a faint. We are to bring them up into spiritual maturity. This is an enormous responsibility, and it requires of us to be spirit controlled and to be submissive to them in our leadership and to have a love for Christ. Not only that, it says we are to cherish them. Thalpo, an interesting word. It literally means to warm with body heat. It was used to describe a nesting bird. And it evokes the imagery of warmth and security and safety and protection. Where we as husbands are to protect something that is fragile and that is precious. She is the weaker vessel, referring to her physical strength. Oh, my dear brothers in Christ, I plead with you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to get serious about loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Set aside your selfish pride and and, and choose to love your wife, whether she deserves it or not. You love her because you choose to love her, even as Christ has chosen to love us, even though there is no merit, there is nothing worthy of our love in us for Christ. Your marriage is to be a living object lesson of how Christ loves his church. John MacArthur has said it so well, and I quote, A husband's greatest motive for loving, purifying, protecting, and caring for his wife is Christ's love, purifying, protecting, and caring for his own bride, the church. Christian marriage is to be loving, holy, pure, self-sacrificing, and mutually submissive because those virtues characterize the relationship of Christ and the church, end quote. Guys, based on your marriage, I wonder what others would say if they were trying to make the connection between your marriage and Christ being the groom of his bride, the church. Men, if you name the name of Christ and you have a sacred trust, please hear this. You have a sacred trust that God has given you to protect the sacredness of the symbol of marriage. And we must all give an account someday for our attitudes and actions in this regard. Men, how you love your wife betrays how you love Christ. Do you see that? 
Any husband who mistreats his wife or mistreats his children has a defective love for Christ if it exists at all. So we are to be spirit controlled men. We're to love our wives, the mother of our children. And then thirdly, we are to discipline and instruct our children. Verse four of chapter six, you see it. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First notice, it says what not to do. It says what you're not to do, guys, is provoke your children to anger. In other words, you're not to make unreasonable demands upon them. You're not to have some domineering, overbearing, tyrannical type of a disposition. Or you can even go to the opposite opposite extreme and you will make them angry by being uninvolved, indifferent, apathetic, a disinterested third party that just lets mama deal with them. After all, you are so self-centered with your agenda you think that it is her responsibility to raise the kids. That's provoking kids to anger. Both of them will drive children to despair and resentment. A man by the name of Lou Priolo has written a very excellent book. I would encourage you all to get it. The Heart of Anger. And in it, he has 25 ways that parents provoke their children to anger. Let me read them to you without comment. And you get the idea of what is entailed in this verse. Here's what will provoke children to anger. Lack of marital harmony. Secondly, establishing and maintaining a child-centered home. Three, modeling sinful anger. Four, habitually disciplining while angry. Five, scolding, which is the biblical word for snorting with anger. Number six, being inconsistent with discipline. Seven, having double standards. Eight, being legalistic. Nine, not admitting you're wrong and not asking for forgiveness. Ten, constantly finding fault with your children and your wife. Eleven, parents reversing God-given roles. Twelve, not listening to your child's opinion or taking his or her side of the story seriously. Thirteen, comparing your children with others. Fourteen, not making time just to talk. Fifteen, not praising or encouraging your child. Sixteen, failing to keep your promises. Seventeen, chastening in front of others. 18, not allowing enough freedom. 19, allowing too much freedom. 20, mocking your child. 21, abusing them physically. 22, ridiculing or name calling. 23, unrealistic expectations. 24, practicing favoritism. And 25, child training with worldly methodologies inconsistent with God's word. Guys, wherever these issues apply to you, you need to deal with it before it's too late. Many mothers have sobbed in my presence over the ways that their husbands have provoked their children to anger and ultimately despair. Men, please hear the warning. Well, what should you do? Well, he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, listen carefully, guys. Discipline means systematically training and correcting your children. That requires thought, doesn't it? It requires effort. You see, this is an act of love, men. Proverbs 13, 24 says, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. What a heartbreak it is to watch rebellious children become rebellious adults and then destroy their lives. And sadly, in most cases, it could have been avoided with the proper discipline and with the proper instruction 
And while it's not always the father's fault, certainly the threat of commonality in most marital problems and most family problems and most rebellion problems in children is a lack of love and leadership on the part of the husband and the father. Proverbs 29 and verse 15 says the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And Proverbs 10 verse 1 says a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Guys, we are to discipline them with the systematic training and correction that God has given us in his word. And secondly, to instruct them. Instruction literally means to put in the mind. And it includes the idea of correcting and imparting factual information, especially biblically as it pertains to the Proverbs and some of the other admonitions that we see throughout Scripture. Men, I admonish you. you we, we've just got to step up to the plate here. We've got to learn to discipline and instruct our children. Don't leave it to mama. Don't leave it to the Sunday school class or to the youth group or to the church or for heaven's sakes, leave it to the public schools. Or even your homeschool groups. God has given you the responsibility to see to it that they fear God, that they love God, that they obey him. Men, we must teach our children to guard their minds and to obey their fathers and their mothers and to honor the word of God and to choose their companions wisely. And on and on it goes. That is our responsibility to see to it that that is happening. Well, men, we all fall short of the divine standard. And by God's grace, we can do better. And again, what a great gift it would be to our wives and mothers to get seriously about being under the influence of the spirit of God, learning what it really means to love our wives and discipline and instruct our children. I want to close with a confession of one Christian father. And I quote, my family is all grown and the kids are all gone now. But if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to the little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. Men, let's give our wives a gift that surpasses all others. The, the one that they would rather have than all of the flowers in the world. All of the good restaurant food in the world. Let's give them a taste of what it means to have a husband and a father who is controlled by the living spirit of God that dwells within them. And let's give them a taste of a person, a man who has a love for Christ that illustrates Christ's love for his church. And let's show them that we're serious about disciplining and instructing our children so that they will grow to be a joy not only to their mother and their father, but also grow to give great glory to the God that we serve. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for our wives and mothers, and we thank you for the joy that we have as husbands and as fathers to love them. Lord, I pray that you will cause the seeds of these truths to bear much fruit in our hearts. We commit all of this to you and pray that you will be glorified in it for Jesus' sake. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.